Welcome to Science and Storytelling, a GSA 75th anniversary podcast on aging. I'm Joanna Chase, Associate Professor at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. Hi, I'm Danielle Waldron, the Vice Chair of ESPO and an Assistant Professor of Healthcare Administration at Stonehill College in Easton, Mass. I study aging on the autism spectrum and am a recent graduate of the UMass Boston Gerontology PhD program. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Keith Whitfield to discuss the role of mentorship in the field of aging. Dr. Whitfield is the president of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and is the first African-American president in UNLV's history. He has worked in higher education for more than three decades and has received numerous national awards and honors throughout his career, including the GSA Kleemeyer Award. An active administrator and researcher, Dr. Whitfield has authored or co-authored over 200 publications and has earned nearly $20 million in funding from agencies including the National Institutes of Health, National Institute on Aging, and the National Science Foundation. A psychologist and expert on the social, psychological, and cultural factors of cognition in healthy aging, Dr. Whitfield's current research focuses on the relationship between stress and longevity in African-American families. He's a member of the National Institute on Aging's National Advisory Council on Aging, and he has served on committees for the National Academies of Sciences and Medicine and the National Institutes of Health. Welcome, Dr. Whitfield. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you again. Yeah, it's very good to be here. Great. Thanks for the introduction, Joanna. Welcome, Dr. Whitfield. We're curious about some examples of how research findings, either in your work or recent studies you've read, can translate into practical use for older adults, students who study aging, all of us in the aging field. Well, that's a really good question, Danny. What's fascinating is, is that a lot of work that we do, a lot of work that I think particularly social scientists do is for the sake of increasing knowledge, but not necessarily to put into practice. I've had a couple of things that I would argue were contributed to policy briefs that were made in terms of trying to uh, argue uh, the impact of health disparities have on special communities. And those are always really exciting. I think for the people who do policy, they have a more direct route sometimes between what they actually write and their science and what action is. For most of my career, it's been trying to address issues that are little known issues, um, little understudied populations, where by providing knowledge, people can have more informed decision-making to make actions. The only other example I could think of, though, is... Um, in some of the work that, and I don't even know if it's direct, but some of the work that I've done translates into things that are considered for interventions that are made. So there's kind of a policy route and there's an intervention route where as we look at clinical interventions today, one of the things that is a huge issue is that there's not enough minority representation in clinical studies. And the question is why? And some of the work that I've done in the difficulties and the issues that arise around recruiting special populations have contributed to some of that. So, you know, I couldn't say, oh, it's those top five ones that did it, but that my work, I've been told by others, we use that to try to figure out what's going on. Or I have a paper from 2008, Journal of Gerontology, Psychological Sciences, I think it is, looking at whether you do between and within group studies. 
and what are the things to consider. So it's it's to me, it's not basic information, but it's thoughtful information that people then Turk put into action more so than my direct papers. Great. Yeah. I think sometimes as social scientists, it's easy to focus on the next publication or what's right in front of you, but we really need to take a step back and see how it's going to implement interventions or policy. And I think a lot of our members, especially ESPO members, are really trying to make those connections between policy, research, and practice. So we appreciate your work in in that field. Can you talk a little bit more about how this research has either contributed to equity improvements or improvements in quality of life? A couple of different ways. It's another really good question. Some is actually just even understanding what the, I was going to say disequilibrium, what what the lack of equity actually what it looks like, how it plays out, how it came about to be. Uh, Some of it is about place, some of it's about geography, some of it's about history even, that special populations, my focus tends to be on African-Americans of of understanding what some of those things mean. The last call I just had actually was with one of our recruiters, where we're talking about people that were born in the 1930s and 40s. And so, you know, good gerontologists always can do at least basic math, you do your addition, So if they were born in 1930, and let's say they were 10 years old, and that's when they had their first incident of going into a store and being followed, and and, and you consider that a a discrimination event that might have even caused some stress. So 1930, that happened in 1940, and if it happened in 1940, now that person is, you know, 72 years old, if I, 71 years old, if I did my math right, of thinking about where people are now, but versus where they've been in the past, because the accumulation of things like stress is almost one of the markers of inequality. I think when we think about it, it's it's not just the action itself, it's the implications of what inequality actually represents. And that then represents disproportionate numbers of people suffering from chronic conditions, health problems, uh, lack of access, all of those sorts of things. And so it's trying to figure all of those things out. It's It's, it's, kind of thinking it from a lifespan approach, but also saying, you know, that person who was here who's 71, what is their conditions like for them uh, and what's important for them? Because somebody who's 70 versus somebody who's 40, um, interesting, there are certain things that actually happen for both those two age groups, but they came about from different reasons. They came about, you know, one is going to be someone who's likely going to experience early mortality and arguably they made it to 70 and you're an African-American, you're doing really, you know, it's sad to say you're doing well. That's that's one of the differences in terms of perspective that one has to look at the data and the implications for those. So that as you try to think about one looking at it through an equity lens and then thinking about solutions, you have to understand how all of that plays together. And also not to just look at the things that are weaknesses or that people are put upon, but and this is for all of you young people out there who, you know, you're interested in this equity stuff, look and see who's who's being successful. Because to some degree, it's to say, you know, we live in a world that's not going to be perfect. So are there some things that should be the first and foremost we try to do in terms of trying to establish equity? Because they have these bigger issues, if, it, if it's just from the perspective of longevity, can we work on those things maybe first? Some of them may be the harder things to do, but some of them may be the more important things. To do. So it's thinking about the perspective of how all of those issues that create inequity 
actually play out and then figuring out which ones may be the ones we try to target and to try to reduce. Great. I think that you hit upon many really interesting points about intersectionality and looking at those resilient individuals, people who are living long lives, perhaps honestly select survival in a way and trying to figure out how we as a society can really help support these individuals as they age and help mitigate these health disparities we're seeing between races and ethnicities. Really interesting, interesting feedback. So now I'm going to pass it over to Joanna for a few questions. Thank you, Danny. So now we're just going to get a little bit more information about the story of you. So you've had a, a, an amazing career. Could you tell us how did you become interested in the field of aging? It is interesting at the point in which I'm in my career and the position I currently have. And I will just add that I'm doing what I've always done in my career, which is, is not doing it the easy way, which is, is that serving as president of the university, I don't have to publish another paper. There's really no need for it. There's, uh, I don't get a, you know, uh, a little gold star or anything. I do it because I love doing it. And I still am an active researcher. I still do publish papers far, far fewer per year, but still publish them. And, you know, I think it's interesting in thinking about where I am now, I think about where I started from. And particularly relative to aging, it came from what I think happens for a lot of people. It came from personal experience. My grandfather passed away from a massive heart attack. Um, and it's so funny when we think about uh, mortality, it's always that people die too young. It doesn't matter what age they are. You, want, you wish they stayed around a little longer. But I think for me, I thought about why, wasn't, why didn't we see something? Why wasn't there an indicator? And also what I used to, I, I thought a little bit about what I valued about my grandfather and that it was that I thought he was one of the smartest people I ever met with a, a sixth grade education. And I can even remember when I was in the seventh grade, I thought, well, I've got more education than my grandfather. You know, I should be able to, you know, outthink him. And he just destroyed me. He just, he, he was a very, very smart man that did not equate to years of education. So when I went to graduate school and I thought about areas that I wanted to study, that was one of the things that really drove me was trying to understand, one, the relationship of health, two, to see whether it played itself out in terms of cognition, and then two, just in terms of cognition of that, you know, education is a great proxy for lots of things, but it doesn't mean everything. And that's where I started some of my research. It's woven its way in lots of different ways, but it is interesting that my latest study, I would argue that it's my last study, but you can, I'm afraid to say never, but it's looking at longevity and it's looking at stress and trying to look and see that stress doesn't just happen. Stress is something that we learn. And so if we learn it, where do we learn it from? Mm, we probably learn it from being in our family at least in part. Some of it is experiential, but some of that, those things, I believe anyway, originate from our family. So I believe that some of that thinking came from early times when I was basically in graduate school, but it's matured over time. And so for anyone's career, when you're doing things that you're passionate about, which I was just, I was passionate about, you know, learning more about cognition and trying to figure it out. And people told me, oh, you're not supposed to just study black people because most of my research is actually only on African-Americans. And I even have a paper, my 2008 paper, a journal of gerontology, everybody should use it and cite it, is the idea of 
why would I take that approach? And it's so that I could better understand the phenomena. Because in doing comparisons, what you do is understand the difference. When you study within a group, you can focus on what that group's unique things are. And then maybe you can make better comparisons afterwards. But I think about it as an initial step. It's only taken me about 30 years and I'm still, you know, there's a lot more to learn, but it just shows that there's a whole different perspective of, of pursuing, trying to think about how one understands a phenomena, whether it be within group, between group, but a phenomena in period. And then the things and in the interrelationships between cognition and health and genetics and all of that, it just takes a little while. I think that's very encouraging for those of us that are younger researchers, just hearing this evolution of thought processes and skill sets and thinking about our research and how and the impact that it will have. Could you tell us how mentorship impacted your career in aging, either mentors that helped you or how you were mentoring others? I've done a, a bit of mentoring of others. And, you know, in some ways, it's, it's almost paying forward the assistance that I had in anticipation of actually being on your podcast. I was thinking about the different people that have contributed to my career. And one of them that contributed to my career, his name is Jared Job. You all probably don't know him. He was with the National Institute on Aging. He's, he's been gone for I don't know how long now. But I really thought about it, of what he did changed the entire trajectory of my career. And what was so funny about it is that I wrote him and, and he wrote back, oh, no, Keith, you work really hard. And I'm like, look, dude, uh, I, I was working hard before. The difference was is that somebody invested in me. Somebody took a moment and said, you know, he's looking at this in a very, he was smart enough, I think, to say he's not doing it like everybody else is doing. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with it. And that because it was unique and different, that he thought that it was worth investing. And he went and did, I do talk about mentorship a lot. And to me, there's difference between mentorship and sponsorship. And he was really more than a mentor. He was a sponsor. He went to bat for me at the National Institute on Aging, made sure that there was a way to to get a grant that was really well evaluated, but it was just missing the funding lines and partly because it was different. And he figured out a way. He went to the mat for me and made sure that my first grant got funded. And that was a twin study of African-American twins, still to this date, the largest in-person study of older African-American twins. So he basically completely, to me, now I might've worked hard and done other things, you know, people who mentor you, it doesn't mean that what they did could never happen again or whatever, but what they did, did make, this man did make things happen. He completely, and it was that he did it with humility. He didn't do it to, to brag later on. Like I have to remind him every now and then when I've gotten a couple of new jobs, when I got to Duke University and then I became a provost and then I became a president, you know, I made sure that, you know, we wrote back and forth. And I told him, I said, I, you know, I hope you're proud. You're, you know, and if I screw up, you're partly responsible for it because you're the one who got me going. But it's been people like that. It's been people, you know, uh, my undergraduate mentor, I, he was not a gerontologist. I don't think he really knew, but he pulled for me. And it's one of the things that I try to do for people as much as I can is that I will pull for them until there's a reason not to pull for them. Like, I will trust you until there's a reason not to trust you. And I think that that's something that when you see it, 
you need to you need to grab them as a mentor and you need to make sure that you do everything that they ask you to do as a mentor because what they're doing they're going above and beyond the call of duty i have also had times when there've been people who i've mentored who didn't listen to me and I struggle with them because I was younger and a hard head and sometimes just probably wasn't paying attention to what I thought. And for me as a mentor, sometimes when I see that, it's like, you should choose whatever path you want to go. I'm just here if you want help. And I say this to a lot of people too. Oh, I say this to some people that I'll help you, but if you don't ask for help, I won't give you help. I'm only going to give you as much as you actually want. But if you want more, I'll keep giving you more. I'll invest in you. I'll, I'll provide that. But I do that in part off of the models that I've had from other people in my life. There's really something so powerful about someone believing in your work. I think we all work very hard. Having that extra person believe in what you're doing to help act as that person who connects you or sort of shows you the robes, just believes in you. Uh, I think that's very powerful. Um, You also provide some really great tips for mentees in terms of, you know, how to interact with your mentor and to have that shared trust. Do you have any advice for people who are mentors or people who are sort of transitioning into that mentorship role? Uh, any any words of wisdom there? I'll go back to your original, one of the points that you made, Joanna, which was is about um, the mentee's responsibility. There's a, there is responsibility that's there. You know, you really have to think that somebody is taking time that they don't have to take to help you. And so that you should listen, you should, you should give them as much feedback as they give to you of saying, you know, I really appreciated this. I decided to do this, this, and this. So that they understand if you don't do what they wanted you to do or whatever, don't give them the excuses of that. Well, my dog was sick and, you know, my homework fell into the washing machine. And so I wasn't able to finish it. No, they don't need to hear about them. They need to hear about decisions that you're making and how you're trying to incorporate maybe what they're saying or how you've even thought about something different because that's fine, too. For people that, uh, as your question was asking about, who are transitioning to mentors, you know, it, it is interesting because... I think even at the point in my career, I don't know everything. And so one of the things that I did I think early on um, when I had the opportunities, when I got mentored by somebody, I used them as part of a mentor network so that people that I was trying to help, because I'm curious, Keith, not curious, George, I'm just curious about stuff. And so I'll talk to anybody about everything. I've been at some incredible places. I mean, I can think of actually Warner Shia, who is a giant in our field, you know, took me to lunch one time. And that time with him was like, it was like slow motion because I was trying to listen to everything he said, because even if he said, oh, my soup is cold, I thought, well, boy, that's really interesting as soup is cold. And I need to understand that Warner Shia thinks about the temperature of soup as he congests. I just wanted to try to figure out everything I could. And in the years that pursued, I would see him and Sherry Willis's wife, and I would see them at GSA and I would be talking to somebody and I'd say, oh, you want to know about everyday problem solving? Well, I learned it from Sherry Willis. So let's go over and talk to him. So we go over and talk to him. And then I can use, it's not so much the information that I had. I was able to use a social connection and be able to then link them so they could talk to the people who are really the experts. So I think, as you're saying about maturing as a mentor, to some degree, know what your limitations are. 
And just because you don't know something doesn't mean that you can't help, but it's always making sure that you don't feel like just because somebody's coming to you, you have to know everything. You can be in part a conduit to be able to use your social capital and who you know and and how you're connected to use that for other people to be able to to connect and be able to grow as as scholars. So I I do have at least one more question for you. How has GSA, the Gerontological Society of America, or a GSA member played a pivotal role in in your career? I'm watching our time and and thinking I could go on with this answer for a long time. GSA is an absolutely, in in terms of my career, it's been essential. Uh, And I think it's because of, you know, for the most part, because people are people, but for the most part, you're around people who are excited about something that you share. And the other piece of it that's relevant for me is that because it's so interdisciplinary and I'm a very interdisciplinary person, I can go to three different meetings back to back and have talked about three completely different topics. And so growing intellectually and growing in terms of my scholarly pursuit has been supported by the association. I may have mentioned I'm the president of a university. And what that usually means is that you have to do leadership. And GSA took a chance on me and made me the the chair of the minority task force. That's what it used to be called back in the day. And that I was, I think, chair of the fellows program. And there were different people who invested in me within that GSA structure and gave me opportunities to try out my leadership. And this is really supportive of GSA, but it's going to sound funny. Actually, GSA taught me that I wanted to be more in the university community and not in the national. Because in the national, I was having a great time. You have great broad impact. That's what's cool about GSA is that it's worldwide. So you can have impact across the world. But for me, I was doing that and I liked it, but I wanted to see the fruits of my labor really, really close. So after doing some of that, it actually made me say, well, let me do more at the university. And I went down a track of of doing leadership roles at the university in large part because of what I learned from GSA. And so it has been critical for for many different reasons in many different ways. Um, I could not identify one person for you. I can I was going through my head about 12 different people that I can think of had different roles in terms of supporting. But I wouldn't give anyone because I wouldn't want to forget somebody. I think that what it is is that as an association, we're I think we're a close-knit group. And so one person helps you with one thing, another person helps you with another. It's, it's just that support structure that can be behind you to be able to both grow in terms of your profession, your scholarship. And for me, it was even my leadership abilities. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions on how individuals in the society that might want to be more engaged, how they can pursue that? Pay attention to the 10,000 things that go on at a GSA meeting. So, you know, there's the interest groups that go on. There are special committees. There are the section meetings. Always go to the section meetings. Those are, you know, I believe that this is Tamara Baker's, I can't keep up with the year. She might have been last year, I think, this year. I know Tamara Baker because she's a student of mine. There's going to be, I'm sure, you know, this incredible session for the section meeting. And in that meeting, you will likely find lots of people who share some of your interests, gone to the same schools, had the same mentors, published in the same journals. There's things that happen in those section meetings that don't happen anyplace else. So you should go to GSA and basically get your sleep, eat eat your vitamins before you go. (laughs) 
I would say go to the sessions, listen to people, make sure in the sessions you ask questions. Do like you do in a class, sit in the front row, ask questions, be engaging, and also use your manners that when somebody gives a presentation, even if you only thought it was a C, say, I really appreciate your your presentation. And it sounds funny, but I say it because that's one of the strengths of our association is that we're connected to each other and we're collegial with one another. And saying that sets the tone. I've been meetings when no one said that, and it was kind of like, eh. And I, the ones when I've been in, when some people have said it, everybody wants to talk to one another. There's stuff that goes on after the presentation, but it's, it's a part of that context that gets set. And that's another way that you are a leader is that you're helping set and contribute to the context by which our scholarship is discussed. So like I, I was going to say, party like a rock star when you're at GSA, but I don't, I, I don't want to endorse that. Um, but then make sure that you plan to get some rest because you're going to, you should be exhausted afterwards. And then once you get over the exhaustion, then you should get inspired about what you saw and what you heard and what you learned and what you thought about coming out of the meeting. That's what's happened to me for a good 30 years. It has, it has been that special of a meeting. And I can tell you, even though COVID and many, many leadership decisions, um, my intent is, is that I will be at GSA this year. And if I am partying like a rock star, no flash photography, please. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been quietly listening over here on the edge of my seat, feeling inspired and reflective. First of all, it's interesting that you mention Tamara Baker, because in my one o'clock class this afternoon, we listened to her podcast. So I use your students podcast to teach my introduction to gerontology students about health equity and disparities at the school where I am now working with my grand mentor who mentored my mentor. And now I have mentees. So we have four generations going over here on at uh, Stonehill. Yeah. I just wanted to say thank you. This has been really amazing. Joanna, anything else? Thank you for taking the time and your busy, busy schedule. Dr. Bushfield. We really appreciate it. Well, that's the other piece about being a GSA member is that when another GSA member calls, you should, you should answer the call. And I just want to give a special shout out to you all. I was with GSA before ESPO was created. And I think that there was some question in front of saying, well, do they need to be so special? They need to do this. And that energy, that momentum that ESPO does, you all impact the entire association. Do not be fooled. All of us old heads want to sometimes think that, you know, we're doing whatever. We're inspired by what ESPO does. And so keep doing what you all are doing. Make sure that you bring along the next generation every single year so that we can learn more and more and we can be a better association. Thank you. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.